Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Philip Terzian, Literator of the Weekly Standard, here with my weekly podcast about the book and arts section of the Weekly Standard. And uh, this week I'm talking about the section for the September 8th issue of the Weekly Standard, which leads off this week with a splendid essay uh, on the Parthenon, all things by A.E. Stallings. A.E. Stallings, um, actually it's Alicia Stallings, A.E. is a she. Um, A.E. Stallings is a distinguished poet and translator of um, uh, classical literature and lives in Athens, in fact, and uh, has written a wonderful review of of an interesting book called The Parthenon Enigma, a New Understanding of the World's Most Iconic Building and the People Who Made It by Joan Breton Connolly. Uh, the book itself is a, an interesting theory, which A.E. Stallings uh, tends to agree with, about the, <clears throat> excuse me, the meaning of the friezes on the friezes, F-R-I-E-Z-E-S, on the Parthenon. Uh, there has been scholarly dispute over the centuries about exactly what they're depicting and what they represent. Um, and uh, the, the Connolly theory, as, uh, as I guess we'll call it, is, is the subject of the essay. And it's a, it's a fun read. Um, it's one of those cases where it's a subject that seems arcane and not necessarily important, but in fact it isn't arcane at all. It's actually quite fascinating and tells us a great deal, not only about the subject, but also about what that subject has meant to our Western civilization. So it's a wonderful piece of what seems to be an interesting book, but more important, it's a wonderful piece about the book, which I think you will find interesting. That is followed by a review of uh, Joshua Moravchik's new book, which is called Making David into Goliath, How the World Turned Against Israel. The reviewer is Ronald Radosh who last wrote for me, if memory serves well, uh, when Pete Seeger died. Ron Ray Dash is, of course, a, a, uh, <clears throat> a chronicler of the late 20th century, mid to late 20th century American history, and um, but also uh, writes a great deal about um, Israel and uh, American relations with Israel and the relation of American Jews to the state of Israel. And this is an interesting book by Moravchik, the premise of which is that over the past 60 years, Israel has gone from being um, a a darling of the American public, uh, admired uh, by right and left alike, to a rather more controversial proposition, um, very much um, unpopular on large swaths of the American left. And... um, he seeks to explain how and why this has happened. And Ron Radosh has what I think is a very uh, succinct and, um, if I may say, even-tempered analysis of what clearly, for Friends of Israel, must be a problem. I mean, Israel's survival is eternally at stake, um, but at the same time, Israel has to live in a world of public opinion and diplomacy, and as in more recent years, it's it's um, having tr- problems of prestige um, here and particularly in Western Europe. Obviously, the Muslim Middle East has always generally been hostile, although not exclusively so. But 
In any case, the book is more about the Western view of Israel. I think Israel still enjoys the the admiration and allegiance of the West, but um, it's as I say, it's not quite as uh, unanimous as it, the praise used to be, and that's a problem for Israel, which both Radosh and Moravchik address, and uh, in what I think is an interesting piece, followed by yet another piece by our frequent contributor Edwin Yoder of a book um, called Why Place Matters, Geography, Identity, and Civic Life in Modern America. This is a book from Encounter Books. Um, it's a series of essays actually edited by Wilfred McClay and Ted McAllister. Um, this is one of those abstractions that when it's put into practice is is uh, far more interesting and pertinent to us as readers, but it's the idea of um, how we as Americans look upon ourselves as Americans, as Texans, as New Yorkers, as citizens of our nation, our state, our city, our community, how we identify with those communities, what those, the differences, I mean, the vast differences in, <clears throat> excuse me, America between our a rural New Englander and an urban Southern Californian and the other in, uh, between Southerners and Midwesterners and Midwesterners from the upper Midwest and those from Ohio and people who live by the river, people who live on farms, people who live in inner cities, people who live in exurbs. You know, we're a very diverse country and we identify to some degree with the um, circumstances in which we live, and they all mean something, and they all have meaning in the broader uh, story of, of America. And it's a, an interesting series of essays, and I think Ed Yoder does the idea much justice in the piece, which is then followed by a review of a book entitled Churchill and Empire, a portrait of an, of an imperialist by Lawrence James, and the uh, reviewer is Robert Wargus. Uh, Winston Churchill is one of those, um, I dread to use the word, iconic figures in history who's um, uh, obviously bestrides the 20th century like a colossus, but um, is also a, a, a figure in history and a, many, a multifaceted figure. And the greater our admiration for Churchill, the more detailed our interest in him is. And of course, Churchill was a multifaceted man. He was a politician. He was a writer. He was an aristocrat. He was a soldier. Um, we Much of modern historiography has been spent kind of separating Churchill's personally written version of the history he participated in with what other historians might regard as the historical record. Um, He's also a great stylist of English prose. Um, he, his life history is very long. He was a formidable uh, figure in British public life, from literally from the end of the 19th century to the middle of the 20th century, and of course a significant figure in the history of the world from the time of World War I, where he was a senior cabinet official, to into, certainly into the early and mid-1950s. Anyway, um, one aspect of his career, which at least in the United States has been less emphasized, is that Churchill was a genuine imperialist. He really believed in the in the mission and virtue of the 
British Empire, and of course he served the empire in India and Sudan and Egypt and elsewhere, and and much of his public life actually was devoted to uh, the preservation and uh, service to and um, defense of, of the empire. In some respects, of course, this put him out of step with British public opinion. His his, he was one of the diehards against Indian independence uh, when it was first seriously brooded in the early 20th century, although by the time he was prime minister during World War II, I think even Churchill recognized that Indian independence was going to come and probably come fairly soon after the war as it did. But of course, Churchill predicted that Indian independence would not uh, produce the peaceable kingdom, and he the, the bloodbath that he feared did take place. Of course, India was divided in two between Hindu India and Muslim Pakistan. And, um, of course, this applies to many other instances in the in the British Empire. But but the the author uh, makes the point that that Churchill's devotion to the idea of empire and his idealization of the idea of the British Empire was a significant motivating uh, force in his life. Um, interesting book and certainly an interesting piece about it by Robert Wargus, which is uh, followed by an equally interesting piece on a completely different subject. Uh, the author of the piece is Tema Ehrenfeld, who is a um, science writer in New York. The book is entitled Bee Time, Lessons from the Hive by Mark Winston. It's published by Harvard University Press, and it is exactly what you might think. It's a book about bees um, but it's two it's a it presents the subject in two different ways one is we learn a great deal about bees and as you can imagine rather like ants and various other selected insects in our uh, in our planet uh, bees are uh, very complicated and very fascinating uh, creatures um, um, more a blessing than a blight to human beings i would say um, but the other half of the equation, of course, is that bees, like any creatures in our habitat, are, are under some threat, literally to their habitat and to their way of life, uh, and from different sources, some of them man-made, some of them not. Um, the author is not suggesting that bees are, are about to disappear from our midst, but, but they are under... Um, they, they face certain challenges in the modern world, I should say. And Tim Ehrenfeld has written an interesting description, not only of bees as, as fascinating creatures, but bees as part of the ecology and, and uh, what lies ahead for them. That is followed by an essay um, by Daniel Ross Goodman, um, a review of a book entitled Roth Unbound, a writer and his books by Claudia Roth Pierpont. No, no relation published by Farrah Strauss and Giroux. Um, Roth Unbound is um, an account of Philip Roth's published novels. Philip Roth, of course, announced last year, I think, that his writing career is over. He's now, I guess, about 80, maybe 81. Um, and he was writing no more novels. And so this gave both Claudia Pierpont and our reviewer, Daniel Ross Goodman, the opportunity to evaluate Philip Roth's um, career in its entirety. Obviously, it's a little early to, to look at Roth, where he stands in the, in the American canon in the long run. Um, Roth is still alive, of course, and writers' reputations have a curious way of 
um, uh, changing once they die. So um, we don't know. All I can tell you is that Daniel Ross Goodman is a um, sincere and fervent admirer of Philip Roth. Uh, I have myself um, been a little more uh, indifferent to his charms as a novelist, but the piece is so so interesting and so persuasive that I've decided to go back and take a second look at some of Roth's later novels, which I, I have not looked at. Um, uh, some of you may be more familiar with the with the um, the, the what would the la the later uh, phase of Philip Roth's career than I am, but I can tell you that this piece has prompted me to uh, to take a second look, maybe even reconsider my views. We end up with a very amusing essay by Joshua Galerner, one of the writing Galerners who contribute to our pages. Um, uh, his both his brother and father have written for the Weekly Standard and will continue to do so indefinitely, I hope. This is a funny little piece about his, he's a periodic visitor to Florence and is a great admirer of Bernini's um, bust of Costanza Bonarelli, which was done in the mid-17th century and um, has been housed in uh, the, the museum where it is housed um, has been under renovation and the the bust itself was was put in storage during the renovation well the renovation is over and um, time has passed but the bust still is nowhere to be seen and it's a kind of funny account of Mr. Galerner's uh, attempts by um, in-person appeal by letter and other means to inquire where on earth is the bust and what do I have to do to get to see it and um, will I be wasting my next journey to Florence by uh, showing up at the Bargello Museum and finding that the, the Bernini bust that I love more than anything in the world is still in some closet or storage facility somewhere and of course he doesn't get any satisfaction there's one museum guard who takes pity on him at one point and takes him and shows it to him but the others are are, are um, uh, quite indifferent uh, if not slightly hostile and of course his his attempts at uh, communicating with the museum are met with the kind of response you can well imagine who knows maybe writing about it in the weekly standard will, will shame the bargello into into at least responding to Joshua Gallanter, if not putting the Bernini bust of Costanza Bonarelli back on um, public view. If so, I will feel that I have done my civic duty for this week, and I um, hope you'll read the piece. That you'll, when, the, when the good news finally arrives, you'll know what we're talking about. Anyway, I look forward to talking to you about next week's edition of the Books and Arts section of the Weekly Standard. I thank you very, very much for listening um, to this week's edition. Thank you and goodbye.